hello everybody and welcome to a new edition of Jose Arroyo in conversation with uh, today today I'm with Misha Yakovlev uh, who uh, is researching into gender sexuality and race uh, in Russian cinema during the transition from communism uh, and the reason why I wanted to talk to Misha is because uh, we had a fabulous conversation the other day in a, a queer reading group at Warwick on Scam, yeah? A Norwegian television series that I'd never heard of and that I now think other people should hear about as well, uh, which is the reason for talking to Misha, because, you know, it seems he knows more about this series than anyone else I know, that's for sure. So, Misha, what, you know, describe what is this series, you know, kind of, and what attracted you to it? Um, thanks. Thanks for having me as well. Um, uh, so, if I were to start by basically... Um, by describing the series Scam um, actually means shame in Norway. And uh, Scam was quite an innovative uh, transmedia um, series aimed at teenagers at young and young adults commissioned by the uh, Norwegian public service broadcaster NRK. Um, and I was kind of coming from my background in queer theory and um, some sort of film criticism, I was very interested in this series for two reasons. So, first of all, for its transnational element, because the way I started watching this series was because um, lots of groups appeared online that offered uh, subtitled uh, episodes um, almost as soon as they released. And I, uh, in various languages, I was mostly um, looking at groups that were in Russian, and some of them had lots of, um, like hundreds of thousands of members who were all kind of fans of the series. So that's one aspect why I was really interested in it. And the other aspect is because originally the series itself was the transmedia series, and um, it didn't have kind of a traditional, I mean, it had a traditional broadcast element. At the end of each week, they will broadcast an ep a new episode. But throughout the week, they will post updates and video clips um, from that would make up that episode, as if in real time. So for example, they, there might be a clip from the characters having lunch, on Monday, and it would be posted around lunchtime at school. And all the characters had their own social media accounts, whether on Instagram or YouTube, and they would post either sort of uh, pictures and videos that would complement the main narrative or kind of screenshots of their conversations, uh, which would then kind of hmm. yeah, make up the episode. Um, it's, it's had uh, four series, I believe. Yeah. Uh, is it true to say that though there are queer elements throughout the four years, you know, the main narrative line is in the third year? Yeah? Yeah, if we're thinking about queerness in terms of kind of non-heterosexuality, then the third season um, would be yeah. the main one. So can you, can you describe the series itself? Because it's a series that, that was commissioned, I believe, by the state broadcaster in Norway, and its intended audience was young girls, yeah? So, uh, can you describe the storyline a bit yet? Yeah, just who are these people and what do they do as the series progresses? And also, how might, you know, the intended audience have expanded? <laughs> uh, yeah, thanks. <laughs> thanks again, Jose. So, um, in terms of the series itself, um, I mean, 
if I'll kind of do an overview of all the seasons, then kind of talk more about season three, I think that would be um, most helpful. Basically, it follows um, a group of students at a school in Norway, um, in Oslo, actually. And interestingly, um, I think I read somewhere that the school was having issues. It's a state school which specializes on um, uh, kind of arts and performance subjects, and it was having issues um, kind of recruiting new students for whatever reason, and that's why they said that at this particular school. And basically, it's kind of perhaps somewhat conventional. It looks at different aspects of the lives of these teenagers, um, focusing on a group of girls who are all friends. Um, and uh, basically, the first season, the second season, and the fourth season focus on a particular girl in that group. And season three focuses on Isaac, who is, and I think either the first or the second season, dating one of the girls in the group, and he's kind of friends with the other ones, and he's the only um, guy lead in throughout the series. And um, it's kind of interesting because his sexuality is stigmatized from the very start, because although he's kind of dating and he appears to be heterosexual, like now his relationships work out and there's a lot of sort of doubt about his um, sexuality, which then kind of um, is explored in more depth in season three because he falls in love with the guy um, who's older, I think in the year above and transfers from a different school. And I think it was, um, so from the start, the series is very popular in um, Norway, Sweden, Iceland, Denmark, and Denmark. And I think alongside being broadcast by NRK, it was broadcast by some satellite channels in Sweden and Denmark at the same time. But it kind of really became globally popular um, with season three and uh, with Isak and Evan's story, um, love story, yeah. And I personally actually found out about the series because somebody posted, I think it was maybe like three or four episodes into season three. Um, somebody posted like a mashup of all their like romantic moments on YouTube. Uh, and that's <laughs> how I, <laughs> that, yeah, that's how I. Uh, and, and you, I you became a real fan, right? You were saying that, you know, you'd went, you'd gone to Oslo and you'd visited some of the locations. And, and that actually this is quite typical of the type of fandom that the series is encouraging, isn't it? Yeah, I think it's really typical and it's very interesting that the series ended up kind of, um, kind of, you could say, penetrating like the materiality of its fans' lives, uh, both through the tours. There was an app, which I think is still up, which uh, basically maps all the locations in Oslo where the characters go and you can kind of follow different routes, construct your own route to recreate the series for yourself. And I remember, and until now, there's lots of merchandise, um, fine merchandise um, okay. from the series. And of course, the various uh, international franchises. Um, we read uh, uh, a couple of articles have been written on uh, the series. We read one combining new and old viewing practices Uses and Experiences of the Transmedia Series Scam by Emily Bengtsson, Rebecca Kalquist, and Malin uh, Svenikson. And we also uh, read uh, Norway Reimagined, Popular Geopolitics and the Russophone Fans of Scam by Sarah Ratileinen. And I was very interested in this Russophone dimension of the series. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Um, sure. So 
again, I think the Russophone communities originally appeared with some of the early seasons, but they didn't really become popular. But when season three came out, um, I mean, all these groups on social media really um, blew up on various social media, but mostly on the Russian um, Facebook alternative called VK.com. Um, and they had um, hundreds of thousands of active users, and I kind of became part of that community. And I think what's really interesting about Richie Lyman's article is because it kind of explores the main reasons why I think um, the show proved so popular with the rest of fans, because it came at a particular moment of, um, well, I think especially for younger people, it has become really clear that the sort of the post-Soviet nationalist experiment has kind of failed and really soured, not just in Russia itself, but in a variety of contexts all across, you know, from Central Asia to um, basically Belarus, maybe not the Baltic states so much. And this show um, allowed kind of almost an alternative reality or kind of a utopia. Uh, I think Ritalinen talks about kind of a queer, the show as a queer utopia for the viewers kind of a world of kindness, diversity, and kind of possibilities that were not available to teenagers and young uh, people in Russia and, yes. you know, beyond. So, so just to uh, uh, re-articulate or to clarify, so at a moment when uh, Russian repression of uh, LGBTQ people is arguably at its worst, <laughs> or certainly at a very bad moment, you have this television series from Norway that is available to see in Russia, at least online, that kind of imagines or, or actually depicts a world, you know, completely different from what is available in Russia. And that I think inspires, yeah, a hope of a different way of being in the world and being treated in the world, yeah, than is uh, possible where you live. Yeah, is that a fair thing to say? Yes, yeah. Uh, so it, it kind of, you know, it offers possibilities of being that the state itself doesn't make evident, right? And one of the things that we discussed in the reading group that I found so interesting was, you know, kind of, uh, you know, this idea, you know, that a nation is an imagined community, right? Uh, and so here is this television show that is creating an imagined community, but I, I suppose a kind of queer nation yeah, that crosses or exceeds or surpasses national boundaries and makes itself an option of belongingness yeah, for people who are, you know, uh, de facto excluded, you know, by a very real frontier, yeah, but are nonetheless able to participate imaginatively in it. Yeah, I think that's kind of so amazing that this series does that. Uh, and do you think it does that? And if it does, how does it do so? Um, so I would agree. Um, obviously, not just in the Russian context, I know as well. There was similar community and mobilization going on in different parts of the world around the show. But uh, obviously, the sort of the Russophone context is the most um, is a context I'm most familiar with, and I think it definitely allows for this. Um, querying of the nation and kind of a, a transnational community. Um, for Russophone fans, I think in a number of ways, because I mean, what people on, on one side of the things, what people don't really realize is that the first area of geography is vast. 
and it's uh, plagued not only by you know repression sexual repression but also by a very real um, lack of financial capital so lots of people who participated in these kind of discussions and in these groups online really don't have the opportunity to be part of a sort of a queer community in their day-to-day -day life because they quite literally physically and materially exist on in kind of a very precarious setting and a setting that is potentially very kind of separated from other places and places um you know sort of um in a way norway becomes almost like a reality by proxy at the same time, I think that in a way that's quite dangerous because it kind of participates in this myth of creation or imagining of the Nordics in Scandinavia as this sort of uh, diverse queer utopia, which of course, it's it's not like that, especially now, you know, Norway is run by a um, sort of a nationalist right-wing government. Uh, there, are certain, there are lots of exclusions that operate. And no, there are lots of exclusions that exclude the actual Russophone fans of scam who can't go to Norway, for example, yeah. because of border policies and economic. Um, but I'm not sure whether that's too far from the the worlds created by the show or the worlds enabled by the show. I think because mm. um, I think the fans created their own sort of worlds. Mm. Um, Can you expand on that a little bit? So, what is the difference between the world depicted and expressed in the show and the world? Uh, uh, desired or imagined by the fans um yeah sure so i think the two articles that we read and discussed in the reading group kind of speak to the different sort of um worlds enabled by the show and if we look at um burke's uh, bankston carl christmas svenningson's article which um actually looks at perception in the Swedish context and not Norwegian context, but the Swedish one, which is very similar because NRK's website is actually available in all the Scandinavian countries and it's not geo-blocked and the languages allow for um, sort of very similar reception. And uh, their participants kind of emphasized the um, the participants of, the re of their research emphasized kind of the immediate applicability of their show to their lives and also to the structure of their lives and I think the article distinguishes between two viewing patterns those people who view all the updates on social media and those people who prefer to just view um, the, uh, the kind of the finished episode at the end of the week and in the first group lots of the respondents talked about how you know they might be eating lunch at their school and then they would get an update um, on the show's blog or an Instagram or something seeing the characters eating at their school and there was like um, this transmedia element for the viewers seemed to have contributed to a collapsing of space and almost like a hyper-reality where the narrative and the worlds created of the by the show um, almost seem to have blended with their lives. And it's very interesting that this happened because the show kind of uses this sort of almost relevance or a, I'm not sure how to describe this kind of the world it creates for the Scandinavian viewer to thematize and to challenge a number of really sort of important social problems ranging from uh, mental health, um, you know, alcohol and drug use among teenagers to to queerness and not just homosexuality, but also, you know, the sexual um, 
relationships and the sexuality of Muslim women, which uh, season four thematizes. And I think it's in many ways very groundbreaking because there's this element of um, thematizing uh, racism and Islamophobia that intersect in Norwegian society um, throughout the seasons. Um, and which I think the Scandinavian respondents really pick up on. Excellent. Um, one of the things that fascinated me as well was the, ele the, the transnational element, because uh, the show is transnational in different ways. One of the ways is the way that you describe, yeah, that, you know, the show itself crosses national boundaries and it has fans and, you know, in Sweden and in Russia and so on, right? But another of the ways that is transnational is through the packaging or the selling of rights to the concept of the show so that now, you know, there's Spanish versions of the show and so on, yeah, that address, you know, their own either national uh, context or the language-speaking countries that are a different context for it. And that kind of creates at least two different kinds of transnational media which I think is very interesting. Do you have any thoughts on that? I mean, I'm not sure what my thoughts would be, but I was very impressed by the fact that a Norwegian TV show, which is not a crime, um, sort of not a crime thriller, um, was able to almost instantly, gener well, not instantly, but after season three or throughout season three, generate so much interest um, from viewers all over the world that broadcasters, as you say, in Spain and Italy, France, um, I think in um, in the U US there was not a public broadcaster, but like a partnership between a private production company and Facebook that mm. um, took the rights out for the show, which kind of really speaks to the relevance in some way of the show to um, teenagers and young people around the world. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one of the other things, so, so I'm asking these questions because, in a way, it interrogates or it re-interrogates what is transnational, and I think for me, it also interrogates what is television. Yeah. Uh, so I know that kind of, you know, this might not be a widely uh, shared view, but you, the show was commissioned by Norwegian national television. Yeah. So on the one hand, I think. In a way, de facto, it is. <laughs> it's television, uh, uh, um, and its model of uh, showing or breaking up. Let's say, for the sake of argument, now breaking up episodes, right? You know, it's something not too different than what you know Coronation Street does here, where you can see it on individual nights, or you you can see the omnibus, you know, on a, on, on at the end of the week, except. Where the show is different is that it's not just that it's showing different episodes throughout the week that you can then see on an omnibus. Is that you know some of the episodes uh, are shown on television and some of you know the things are done by text and some of the things is a YouTube video, right, or an or an Instagram post, I think, yeah. So it's kind of using all of these different platforms as part of the story, yeah. That yeah is then knitted together into the omnibus. So, so you know, I, I think that's a very, well, it's a very interesting structure, first of all. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, but it, to me, it also interrogates, you know, is an Instagram or a YouTube? Yeah. How does this fit into our conceptions of what is television? Yeah. 
And I wondered if you had any thoughts on that. Because I don't have any uh, conclusions. I just have questions. I just find it interesting. No, I think that's right. And um, as well, it's very... It, it's very interesting, as you say, the show, because in a way, you know, if... Um, if we talk about, uh, you know, the intended audience, which were Scandinavian youth who watch, um, and that segment of that audience who watched um, the show in real time, for lack of a better word, through the various updates, um, it kind of echoes, I think, as we were discussing in the um, um, reading group, it kind of echoes the flow, the television flow, where you kind of have to watch, or you're encouraged to watch the program in a particular way. So it goes against the kind of the binge-watching phenomenon or kind of viewing on demand, which we see with Netflix. But at the same time, the level of integration with different platforms is very striking. And um, I don't really have an answer of whether it's television or not, but I think the show in many ways precipitated some of the later developments in interactivity, which has been undertaken by lots of um, public broadcasters as well, like the BBC and Channel 4 here in the UK, which use YouTube a lot. Not quite to the same um, degree of kind of interactivity, but where a lot of the content is being consumed by certain segments of the viewers through YouTube, basically, rather than on television. Yes. I was thinking of this binge watching thing because, you know, uh, so, you know, the film encourages a particular flow across the media. You know, you could also watch it at the end of the week in this omnibus presentation. You know, but I myself, after I saw the first episode and after the first couple of episodes we were meant to prepare for the reading group, and after the discussion of the reading group, I, I binge-watched, you know, the entire third season, right? So again, you know, that option kind of is also there amongst many other modes of viewing, right? Uh, which I, I, I really uh, uh, find that an interesting thing. So, and I also found the film, um, the, sorry, the film, <laughs> the formal aspects of this transmedial work really fascinating. So one of the things that to me seemed a contrast to like the teen shows that we see on Netflix, for example, is the kind of uh, reticence or respect that is shown for the young people's bodies. So there are these sex scenes, you know, that, um, you know, are very intense. Yeah, but, you, but, but you, the camera tends to focus on faces rather than, you know, I mean, there's no blatant display of bodies as kind of, an, there's no, I mean, It's, it, young bodies are not objectified for the camera. It's not that you can't take pleasure in what you're seeing, yeah, but, you know, that it's not fetishized. I mean, would you agree? Um, yeah, I would agree, and I wonder whether partially it's due to the age of the actors, perhaps. I'm, I will have to, you know, look more into it. But I think the show, uh, both in its formal elements and narratives, is really invested in kind of celebrating uh, different... Uh, sexualities um, that young people have or might want to explore but at the same time there's a real kind of emphasis on respect and agency when it comes to embodiment throughout the show and the variety of embodiment that it kind of it is invested in as well yeah so that also to me was rhymed and i think you pointed this out which i hadn't noticed before but the 
parents are ever present through phone calls and texts and so on, but you never see them. Yeah, so that, you know, kind of the imaginary world that's presented, you know, that is a teen world of, yeah, feeling and discovering and growing into and so on uh, and experimenting. It's like, you know, the parents are outside the frame. They're there, but but they're not there. Yeah. And which I thought was kind of also fascinating. I mean, do you, you've seen more of the show. I mean, is this part of the, the show strategy or is this just a season or? And what do you think of it? Um, so I think it's definitely the case throughout most of the seasons. Uh, in season four, we see um, well, season four focuses on Sana, who is one of the girls in the group, and um, she's Muslim and uh, she she wears a headscarf, which is kind of a very important thing throughout the show because of the way some of the teachers treat her, for example. Um, sort of this person who lacks agency, which is definitely not the case. And with her parents, we see a little bit more of them. But in general, the show is, even then, like we didn't see a lot of them, although they're present. And I didn't really know what I think about it so much. I think on, on one level, um, this kind of absence of parents is another thing which kind of um, influences the popularity of of the show in the Rastavan context because it creates this utopian world of like Norway as the land kind of of freedom and not just of you know gender sexual freedom but of freedom for young people which is perhaps not available in for lots of Rastafan fans whether because they are forced to live with their in kind of multi-generational households for economic reasons or because of traditional family structures but other than that I can't really I'm not sure whether my thoughts on uh, the role of the family are Okay. Let's shift the conversation a little bit now. And so rather than speaking, you know, as a scholar, <laughs> uh, let me ask you as a fan. Yeah. What drew you to the show? Kind of, you know, what led you to kind of Oslo and what did you see there? <laughs> uh, I must say that, like, as an individual, I feel somewhat invested in this sort of myth. Um, and when I say I'm invested in a myth of uh, Scandinavian exceptionalism, I mean, I'm not sure I can speak not as a scholar, but yeah, that's kind of, um, I actively, like, throughout my life, I romanticize kind of the Nordics as this, um, mm. for a variety of reasons, because of social democracy, because of perceived liberalism, especially when it comes to gender, um, and sexuality, which is very interesting because I live in London, which is, I would say, a much more open and a queer city in many ways, mm. although due to kind of neoliberalism and things, it's um, changing a lot and has changed a lot. But yeah, when I went to Norway, I really enjoyed it. And I feel like um, my perception of the show, and that happens with me all the time, like I watched uh, Almada Vars Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown and I went to Madrid and for me Madrid is like a <laughs> carnival city. I know yeah. it's not like that, but that's... I've, uh, I've done that with Almada as well. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's how I perceive it. And with show, like, um, I think one of the very interesting formal elements of the show is the way it um, sometimes draws out and sometimes compresses time. and. Yeah. For me, that when I went to Oslo, I kind of felt like that with the whole, you know, I'm not sure whether the, the, the episodes which you watched were enough, but the show um, 
has lots of stills of the cityscape and maybe like a streetcar and for me like the experience of being in Oslo was very similar because there's a lot of open space um there's not that many people and maybe that speaks to kind of the generalist cinematic aesthetic of the Nordics mm. yeah but also it's a show that is filmed I mean unless I am grossly mistaken it looks like it's filmed in real locations in real coffee shops and real streets and so on is that true yes I think almost I think actually all of the show is um filmed in real locations and that app which I mentioned which kind of um, maps all of them when I went to Norway um, I didn't I think I went to like maybe 80% of all the filming locations um, but not exactly 100% of them so I went to the school where lots of the action takes place I went to this little cafe um, where Isaac in season three is waiting for Evan um, and I had a coffee there. I didn't. I, I was. I, I went there like three times, and I was hoping to uh, meet the actors because a lot of the actors actually went to that school and or were at uh, that school at the time. I didn't meet any of the actors. I spoke to one of the teachers from the school. Um, actually, when I went there, um, they already had a rule in place that you weren't allowed to go onto the school property because there were so many fans trying to visit that you could just stand outside on the sidewalk, uh, which I uh, did. Um, also in season three, I think it's in episode eight or nine, they have this uh, really interesting sex scene where Evan takes Isaac to this hotel, the Radisson Hotel in yes. Oslo. And uh, that scene also kind of is when we find out that, he's, uh, that Evan suffers from a bipolar, um, a bipolar disorder because uh, kind of in the middle of the night, he can't sleep. And in the middle of the night, he just runs out. He walks out onto the city's completely, uh, city streets completely naked. Um, so I went to the hotel. I didn't stay there, but yeah. <laughs> so um, do you have interactions with the fan communities? And and if so, what, 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 what were they? What were they like? Because it has a very kind of vivid and active and diverse, I, I understand, uh, fan communities. So, um, any thoughts? Um, I right now. I mean, I, I I no longer have interactions. But uh, when um, I was watching the show and when the season, um, the fourth season started, I also watched all of it, um, and I bitched to watch the first two seasons. I followed almost all the groups, uh, both on Instagram and VK.com, and there were lots of. I mean, people like to do. Um, video and uh, image collages of their favorite characters or maybe like ship some of the characters together and they kind of imagined alternative storylines especially for some of the guys who were like wh whose sexuality was not defined and who were kind of like sex secondary characters and yeah I, I definitely participated in the community and um, since so much of the show deals with mental health uh, there was lots of content which people were posting about, like, let's be kind to each other, which is also kind of something very, um, in the in the Russophone public cultural space, mental illness is almost a taboo topic, and this sort of um, messaging around kindness, both when it comes to sexuality, gender, and mental health, but also religion and race, was something very... Um, I, I would say it really shifted my sort of epistemological perspectives on, um, you know, people my age who come from Russia in the post-Soviet space. Um, 
because beforehand I had a very sort of colonial or internally colonized perspective of Russian people as this, you know, um, bigots, which right, yeah, which was very nice so, to. So 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 it's revealing not only about queer cultures and about Norway and so on, but actually about, you know, Russian culture and attitudes as well, yeah? That's what I'm getting from you. Yes, it's revealing. I think it's very important because as we kind of started off talking about community, for many people um, in Russia and other post-Soviet spaces who participated in these communities, they, it's impossible to kind of, I'm quite lucky I have, you know, um, and I've always had really supportive and open-minded people in my offline existence, but for many people it's not the case. It's very difficult to form a community with like-minded people, whether you are queer or you, um, you know, suffer from mental health issues or whatever. And um, I'm not sure whether I should bring it up, but one of the things which um, Rachel Einan talked about um, uh, Rachelina talked about in her article is basically the show and the way the show imagines Norway as the site of diversity was often read um, by some Russophone fans as kind of um, they were so invested in this mythology of Norway that they kind of perceived Russia as the opposite of that of that as completely uh -huh. lacking diversity and she brings an example of somebody saying of somebody posting um, something about um, one of the episodes in season four saying, well, like, I'm Muslim as well. And another Russophone fan replied, well, like, that's not true. You know, there are no Muslim people in Russia. And of course, if you live in particular sites in Russia, it's very easy to imagine the culture of the country as multicultural. But of course, um, Russia is, remains, um, even after all the lots of countries became independent after 1991, a colonial empire with, you know, Muslim majority sites in the Caucasus and in Tatarstan, which is a neighboring republic to where I live. Um, uh, and I think that community also enabled in a less direct way, a sort of a decolonial exchange where certain minorities in, in Russia, but also in the post-Soviet geography were able to kind of perform their you know, identities in a way that's not conflicted, because, you know, if there were Muslim fans of scam, that means that goes, um, you know, to unsettle very, um, a host of stereotypes, both in Russia and in the West about, you know, Islam's incompatibility with homosexuality or with feminism. So I think that's very interesting and very positive, because, again, these perspectives are completely erased from public okay. cultural discourse. Um, so I want to end with two uh, but interrelated questions. So, um, why should people uh, watch Scam slash Shame? Uh, and what could we learn from the program? So, two different, but I suppose interrelated questions. I, th I think if we're talking about people who make, you know, or do the programming for those types, types of programs, I think uh, what we can learn from the show that it's... Uh, you know that young people, teenagers, don't need necessarily an explosive narrative, and that kind of a realistic, but also very uncensored portrayals of um, different aspects of um, you know young people's experience is something that can really uh, drive your engagement, even if you're a public broadcaster. And I think, um, especially in the UK context, maybe um, 
the BBC in particular should take more risks with its young people's programming. Although I know, for example, the Northern Ireland programming for both the BBC and Channel 4 is very um, um, progressive, but yeah, in general. I would encourage, uh, uh, you know, everyone I know who is interested in the verse or, or the representation of teenage experience in, uh, I was going to say in all its diversity, and that might not be true, but, you know, dis displaying or depicting a great deal of diversity. I think you'll find it all very interesting. I think you will also find, you know, questions of form and address uh, kind of equally interesting. And if you're interested in, in questions of queer sexualities or, you know, kind of transmediality, uh, uh, you'll find this, uh, you know, a very fascinating show. So do have a look. Misha, a last word? Yeah, a last word about form, which we didn't really mention. And I just thought it's worthwhile saying that in the omnibus episodes at the end of the week, the intermediality is really marked with a long um, sort of um, pauses between the different um, frame, like, you know, the different little videos. The, the editing is not seamless. Um, a lot of the a lot of the message, you know, WhatsApp or text messages that were posted during the week, they would appear on screen as these sort of messaging bubbles. So I found that very interesting as well. It's a fascinating intersection of, you know, transnational media and, you know, trans, <laughs> yeah, intermedial kind of uh, media or transmedial uh, work. Uh, uh, that I, I think kind of offers a, a lot to think about, really, uh, uh, both kind of formally in terms of national cultures, in terms of queer cultures. Uh, I found it a fascinating show. So thank you very much, uh, Misha, for introducing me to it. And thank you very much uh, for, for this discussion that I hope is of interest and news to other people as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having Anyway, cliche, 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 cliche.